Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banter Podcast, where birders talk birding. I'm going to open this episode talking about the birding year. All of us have a way that we think about our year. A lot of us use the calendar year, you know, spring, summer, winter, and fall, that sort of thing. Well, birders, we have our four seasons of the year, too, and we, we often call them winter, spring, summer, and fall. But we think about them differently. We think about them by what birds are around, what's happening in terms of birding. So winter birding, winter, winter season for birders, is not necessarily the same as winter for other people, although it's probably the season that most closely resembles the calendar season. Winter is a time when we see two primary types of birds. We see the birds who live here all year round. They don't go anywhere, so they're here in the winter just like every other time. We call those our resident species. And we have the birds that visit our area in the winter, breed somewhere else, and come here to spend the winter because it's a better place for them to be in the winter than where they breed. A lot of those birds breed north of here. You think of migration often in the northern hemisphere as being birds breed farther north and go farther south where it's not as cold to winter. Well, even though I live in Washington, I think of that as fairly far north for the United States. For the actual globe, it's not all that far north. It's fairly temperate. And a lot of Arctic birders and birders from north of here in Canada and Alaska come to our area for the winter. And in eastern Washington, that's also true, but they get different birds than we get here in western Washington, just like in the breeding season, the birds tend to be a little different. So winter birding in Washington is one of the more exciting times to be a birder. We get great winter visitors. The winter visitors we uh, chase and look for the most are often raptors. We go for raptors in the Skagit Flats, the Samish Flats, and in the big open spaces in eastern Washington, as well as just around other parts of western Washington. But the Skagit Flats, Samish Flats are a famous raptor place, you know, Big national tour companies bring their uh, trips to our area for the winter. It's a great place to look for raptors. We get up, Sometimes we get up to five falcons in a day, jeer falcon, prairie falcon, peregrine falcon, merlin, and American kestrel. One year we had a visiting Eurasian kestrel. We had six kestrel, uh, six falcon days. It was crazy. But uh, so we see raptors. We see rough-legged hawks uh, are, are a popular bird to look for in the winter. We also get visiting seed-eating birds from north of here. Uh, but, uh, things like common red pole, uh, uh, red crossbills, white-winged crossbills on a good year, pine grosbeaks. We get birds that breed either at higher elevation or north of here that come to more accessible places to find in the winter. So winter birding is really good in Washington. And winter tends to be more or less winter. Starts in probably November-ish and goes through March or April. We have our winter visitors during that time. So it's longer season than just a calendar winter, but it roughly correlates with what you think of as the winterish season. Spring migration is the second season of the year. Spring migration is a, is a spread out period of time that for some species starts as early as February, uh, but the peak of spring migration tends to be a pell-mell rush of birds that breed south of us and are traveling through, uh, that winter south of us, that are traveling through to breed north of us. Uh, so they just kind of buzz on through in the spring. Typically that's mid-April to the end of May general time frame, especially for shorebirds, which is what in Washington is one of the prime things we look for in, in spring migration. We have Grays Harbor and and uh, and other areas that are terrific for spring migration shorebirds. We get big congregation of shorebirds that come through. We also get an occasional unusual raptor in western Washington, like Swainson's hawk, uh, and uh, we have some songbirds that come through too. But primarily, Shorebirds are our big uh, thrill in spring migration in Washington, unlike eastern U.S., where uh, passerine migration is a big thing. Along the whole Gulf Coast and much of the Atlantic Coast and much of the Mississippi Flyway, seeing the warblers and buntings and tanagers and other passerines that come through the colorful uh, neotrophic migrants it Winter south of south south of us in Mexico and Central and South America and the Caribbean come whipping on through and stop over at some famous places High Island, Cape May, Dauphin Island. There are all sorts of famous uh, stopover places 
that can congregate large number of migrant pastures in the spring. So spring migration is a bigger deal probably in other parts of the country than it is for us here in Washington. We have a terrific shorebird migration and uh, spring is always fun because, you know, it's starting to get warm. It's nice to get out birding and it's a great time. So spring migration is certainly one of the highlights of anybody's birding year. And then summer is when we look for the birds that breed in our area. The spring migrants have gone through, the fall migrants haven't started coming back through yet, and so we're looking for birds that breed around here. So summer breeders, or summer breeding season, is the third season. And that's a good time to look for common breeding resident, common birding, breeding birds, both residents and those that winter elsewhere and come to our area to breed. And it's always fun to do that, but it's really the probably the slowest time of the year in terms of the birding season. Fortunately, spring migration can go up until the beginning of July, and fall migration can start at the later in July and the end of July. And so we only have a week or two uh, between spring migration and fall migration. So the summer lull is not so bad. And my guest today, Jason Fedora, talks about a competition he had put on in his county, or his two adjacent counties, Benton and Franklin County, down where he lives near Tri-Cities. And uh, they had a competition between the birds in the two counties to see who could find the most birds in July. Uh, the time of year when, at least in their counties, and I think really in many places, is the, the lax time of birding. Not that many people getting out, trying to add a little excitement to the summer birding season in his county. So that was fun, and we talk about that a little bit on the episode. The fourth season, of course, is fall migration. Fall migration is a terrific time for shorebird migration. We get a lot of vagrants show up here in the fall, both shorebirds and Asian birds that somehow just get over here and passerines that breed in the boreal forests of Canada and north of us that usually go east and go down east of the Rocky Mountains on the migration, but some of them wander through eastern Washington and even western Washington, so we can get some vagrants. It's a great time to look for rarities, uh, as well as fall migration. For sure, birds can be really good. Uh, so our four seasons, just like uh, the Peter, Paul, and Mary song, winter, spring, summer, and fall... All you got to do is look for the birds and be out there in the right place at the right season, and birding can be fun year-round. Uh, so I'm really excited to have as my guest this week, uh, Jason Fedora. Jason lives in Franklin County, has a terrific job with the U.S. Uh, with the excuse me, the Washington State Department of Fish and Wildlife. He is the wildlife uh, person for the DFW, uh, who works in Benton and Franklin counties of Washington and has been a terrific addition to our birding scene here over the last few years. A super nice guy. Met him in the field once, and I'm excited to have him on as my guest today. I think you'll enjoy listening to Jason Fedora on the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 73. Jason, welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast. Thanks for being on with me today. Yeah, no problem, Ed. Nice to be here. Yeah, I, I really had a nice time when we met. Uh, yeah, I, I met you, I'm sure you remember, we met... Uh, somewhere in eastern Washington, and you showed us a little town with a sewer treatment pond that was really cool. Do you remember where that was? Yeah, I think uh, you and Ken were doing kind of a eastern Washington uh, fall tour. I think it was yeah. September, and uh, there's a, a little town of Mesa, uh, which looks like Mesa, but is pronounced Mesa, and um, yeah, there's just a, that's in central Franklin County, and they've got a little sewer pond that just is a great opportunity to view birds. It's kind of closed to the public, but I've been working with some of the staff there in the town to allow for some tours and things like that, uh, you know, when we can arrange it. But, um, but yeah, that was really great meeting you and about, I think there were maybe 12 other folks from uh, Western Washington uh, yeah, enjoying that... a sunny day and looking at shorebirds in the uh, sewer pond there. Yes, I remember now the Mesa. Mesa, that's what it was. I am uh, geographically challenged. I go to places, I have to look back at my eBird list to remember where I was. Anyway, that was really nice. Yeah, that was a great, great uh, time. Our ABC Club uh, leads trips. Ken usually leads the trips, and I'm sort of his sidekick a lot of the times. And uh, and that was really good. So uh, you are uh, working. What is your job now, Jason? I, I know you have a full-time job, but it, and it's with it's with the state, isn't it? Yeah, so I'm the uh, district wildlife biologist for the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife and cover Benton and Franklin counties in south central eastern Washington. Okay. And 
I guess what that entails is, you know, there's pretty much uh, within the Department of Fish and Wildlife, we have fish, we have wildlife, and so we have biologists kind of in those uh, arenas. And I cover everything from butterflies to elk and all of the kind of terrestrial wildlife species, including a whole bunch of work with different bird species in the Columbia Basin. So uh, it's kind of a really cool position. Um, I get to do a lot of different uh, field work with different species and uh, involved in a lot of different conservation efforts with uh, especially shrub step habitats in eastern Washington. Very cool. Yeah, shrub step habitat is really a special habitat. We had Andy Stepniewski talk to our ABC club about about that whole incredible shrub step habitat, and uh, he actually led a led a trip uh, out there for a group. Uh, he kind of had the class in the fall and led a trip in the spring. It was really special. So yeah, that is a great great. Yeah, tell me a little bit about shrub step habitat. It's it's just a very unique sort of a uh, you know habitat. So yeah, when I when I came out to Eastern Washington, it was kind of um, a newer habitat for me to kind of get to know. And I, even when I talk locally with folks and mention the word shrub step, you know, I get a lot of black blank stares. And I mean, shrub step is simply shrub and step, which is grassland uh, habitat. So where you get this uh, in our region, we have sage uh, sagebrush is a dominant shrub type. They'll mm-hmm. see several other species, including like rabbit brush and greasewood that make up the shrub component, depending on where you are. And then the native kind of bunch grasses that would dominate the rest of, you know, as you get higher in elevation, it may uh, tend more towards bunch grasses. And, you know, there's kind of two major threats in my mind right now with shrub step, you know, Historically and, and still somewhat ongoing, there's been a lot of development pressure. You know, these shrub step habitats are treeless and out in uh, the eastern Washington area with lots of sunshine and these deep soil um, areas were really quickly converted for uh, agriculture. So sure. uh, we, and now we're going through in at least the Tri-City area with some further um, development threats with uh, suburban kind of, you know, development as well as energy development, you know, a lot of green energy that we're really, um, looking towards to help benefit, uh, climate change and, you know, other pollution and species. Right. Um, a lot of that is solar and wind, and those are really, um, currently being focused, uh, in Eastern Washington or, Mm -hmm. I guess, but you know, Eastern Washington is really kind of the, the area that's um, a lot of that development's being focused currently. And so, so yeah, so if you're coming out to Eastern Washington along the gorge, one of the first things you notice as soon as you get into a area with less trees is you're seeing all of these wind turbines up on the ridges. And um, we have a lot of pressure for wind development. More recently, there's been a lot of pressure for development for solar panel installations and industrial level solar sites. So um, those are going to have an impact on shrub step and uh, the development that's already happened, you know, is definitely fragmented and caused a big loss to intact shrub step. And unfortunately what we have left um, is mostly degraded on poor soil. And so the shrub components grow very slowly Um you know, burrowing animals don't have uh, as much habitat availability there. Mm-hmm. And um, this habitat's really been, you know, not only so you've got basically the worst of what was already left that hadn't been developed. And now it's been inundated with a lot of invasive species of grass and weeds that um, create this issue with fire. And I can talk yes. about that a little bit here. If- sure. Yeah. I, it, it's a fragile habitat. I mean, the, you know, I, I remember when Andy talked to us, the, it looks like just, just nothing growing there, but it's actually this crust of incredible microorganisms and fungal elements and things that even a footstep that looks like there's nothing growing there anyway. What's a footstep that is, you know, seriously degrades the habitat. 
Yeah, so it sounds like you've seen some some nicer intact shrub step where you still get that uh, cryptobiotic crust and that you know moss and lichen uh, kind of mm-hmm. understory, and then you get the sparse bunch grasses and wildflowers. Um, that's a really nice intact shrub step site, and a site like that is really incompatible with fire in the sense that a fire can't really take hold uh, naturally shrub step habitat would be really defensive against fire. You know, small fires would happen periodically, but the historical fire regime would be more on the scale of 50 to a hundred year fires occurring oh, okay. uh, versus what we're seeing now when you, you know, like you mentioned the footsteps and trampling, um, you know, think about cattle that are being mm-hmm. grazed out there can sure. really tear up that kind of understory provides an opportunity for non-native grasses such as cheatgrass and other species to create this flammable carpet. So oh. now where you have a roadside ignition um, or you know a, a lightning strike, which would be considered a natural fire cause, it has this unnatural result that this fire can now carry for you know acres miles. and acres. Yeah. Yeah. Miles, and so we've I'm seen- sure. Yeah, so we have seen some really large fires in eastern Washington, um, and that the, the the issue there is that also sagebrush, because it's adapted, you know, to be really in a less disturbed fire regime, um, it doesn't really survive uh, intense fire, and mm-hmm. the seeds don't really um, the seed bed uh, doesn't germinate, you know, after the fire. So uh, you really need to start with bringing in new uh, sagebrushes or seeds. And so it's a fairly mm-hmm. intensive effort to restore. Oh boy. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. I bet well, I, the areas of sage that I've seen burned are just like ugh, moonscape. They just look horrible. Yeah. And you might have that landscape that had sagebrush and bunch grasses. And after a fire, I mean, you, you can tell on the hillsides in some areas like, Oh, well that must've burned. And that area clearly hasn't. Cause you can see the, strict demarcation between shrubs and now grassland. Sure. Um, and and, that, and that's kind of led to, I guess I can go in to talk about a few of the species, you know, when, yeah, please, you know, this Eastern Washington shrub step, um, you know, I think people think, especially with a uh, sagebrush sparrow is a very, you know, specialized species mm-hmm. that breeds really only in intact, large, continuous um, acreages of shrub step uh, with with large intact sagebrush. Um, it's probably the most obligate species that I can think of with based in the habitat. Certainly um, the hardest to find. <laughs> yeah. And, but where when you do find them in good habitat, they're very abundant. Um, exactly. But we're losing a lot of those large intact areas. Um, and then you get into some other species. Uh, one of them that I work with is a ferruginous hawk. And yes. Ferruginous hawk has really been a really cool species to observe. Um, it's really a South Central Washington specialty within the state. Mm-hmm. Um, it likes open, um, you know, open grassland shrub step and nests on these, you know, cliff faces typically, although we do have them nesting sometimes on, you know, steep scree slope or nest platforms. But usually find an outcrop, you know, in kind of like a, a coulee or canyon, and mm-hmm. you'll just see these massive stick nests. And they will take uh, really large, typically sagebrush branches, and they could be as thick as your wrist to build oh, wow. the base of this uh, structure and um, often add to that year after year. So you can, in a few places, see some really massive nests, and then assuming they don't burn, you can see these nests in the landscape, you know, long after they've been abandoned, which uh, unfortunately now we're down to about 22 pairs uh, left in Washington. Oh, wow. It's been a state listed species, I think, since the 80s um, as threatened, which is its current status, although um, it's highly likely that that's going to be upgraded to a state endangered species. Sounds like that would be appropriate. I got a chance to see, it sounds like a significant part of the population. I went out and visited Mike Denny. Ken and I went and visited Mike Denny, uh, oh, early this spring. 
And uh, he took us all around and boy, showed us, I think we saw 11 ferruginous hawks that day. It was just wow, wonderful in the, in the uh, Walla Walla area. And they, they've had a lot of success there with nest platforms, I believe. Exactly. Were a lot of the nests at platform sites? Or the One birds? was in a tree, believe it or not, and uh, the others were on platforms, yes. The department did recently install 16 platforms in Benton, Franklin, the Walla Walla counties um, this past fall. So we're hoping to see some success with that. But Nest sites, at least in the historic range, haven't really been what's limiting the species. Uh, it's definitely been more related to habitat loss and fragmentation and reduction mm -hmm. of their prey base. Yeah. Um, and ferruginous hawk are these, you know, mammalian specialists for the most part, really would prefer to eat uh, ground squirrels, uh, some rabbits. Um, you know, prairie dogs, which they eat in the uh, east of the uh, Continental Divide. Mm -hmm. But in Washington, we have, when you think of these species that are really common and widespread and in other states and, you know, considered pests, they're so abundant. Mm -hmm. um, we haven't allowed hunting of jackrabbits in Washington since the 70s. They started declining back then. We have a state um, protected Washington ground squirrel, which inhabits a lot of the native range of the ferruginous hawk, um, and it's doing very poorly. Um, and pygmy rabbits uh, are, you know, a federally endangered um, uh, population segment in the Columbia Basin that the department's doing a lot of work on. So, so a lot of these species are basically the baseline of you know, the foundation building block, blocks of, you know, this uh, prey-predator relationship are really not doing much better in Washington either. So, Sure. So lack of food source is one of the major uh, problems for them, and that's a direct result of lack of habitat for the food source, it sounds like. Yeah. And, I mean, ferruginous hawks do this really uh, interesting migration. West of the Continental Divide, in the Great Basin and Columbia Basin, uh, almost all of our breeding birds um, migrate at the end of the breeding season. They'll head east, either northeast into the prairie provinces of Canada or mm -hmm. southeast into more of the Great Plains, where they feed on ground squirrels and, and prairie dog. Um, the Continental Divide, they just fly right over it. It's not really causing this you know, sure. great divide for them. And they'll stay there until those species uh, kind of go dormant for the winter. Uh, in in Washington, a lot of our ground squirrels, you know, they um, are only up a few months of the year. And by June, July, they're all uh, basically uh, underground estivating until next spring. Mm. So when their prey disappears here, they cross the mountains, uh, forage there for a few months, and then fly back over the continental divide to the most of them spend the winter in central California really? uh, and before coming back up. So they make this big circular migration through the year and end up returning to uh, eastern Washington um, as early as mid-February. I know and, they came early. Yeah. <clears throat> but it's really interesting, uh, you know, migration that is related to these food sources and the timing of those food sources. Yeah, sounds like, uh, I mean, a lot of birds do that. There's no reason to think that they wouldn't. I mean, a lot of our passerines go uphill uh, to chase food sources for molt migration. And, and uh, you know, seabirds do that all the time, kind of chase the oceans with the sea, with the food in non-breeding season. So sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Good. So, Jason, yeah, I, I, got, I have a little bit of a feel for what your job is now. Uh, you've had this job for about five years. I think, think you told me you'd done a, a number of field research jobs uh, between your education and when you got this job. Tell me about some of those jobs. Yeah, sure. So I had a pretty um, diverse resume um, coming into this position. I'd spent pretty much, uh, I'm originally from Erie, Pennsylvania. And went to school out there at Allegheny College. And when I graduated, I had an environmental science degree and didn't really know what to do with it. Environmental science degrees are kind of like the shotgun approach to science that cover a little of everything, geology, biology, chemistry, and political science type stuff. And 
then I just kind of wanted to get some experience and ended up taking this internship on a wildlife refuge in central Texas that never didn't know anything about central Texas, but went to a year to work at Balcones Canyonlands National Wildlife Refuge. And wow. uh, this is a special place for birders because it's uh, host the, the central Texas endemic breeders, uh, the golden cheek warbler and right. the black cap vireo. Now black cap vireo breeds also in Oklahoma, but the golden cheek warbler only breeds in the hill country of central Texas. And so I wasn't a birder. I didn't really have any interest in birds then, but I was working, uh, you know, each day with these really great biologists and, you know, bird enthusiasts. Um, Chuck Sexton was the main biologist for the refuge there. And uh, Will Reiner was kind of the assistant bio. And we would spend, they were super patient and really enthusiastic and kind of spurred me on to learning a little more about birds. Now, my job there was doing all kinds of stuff, but we had probably 15 different species of sparrow that would winter in the front yard of the house that I was living on, <laughs> on the refuge. Wow. We'd go, you know, maybe start the morning and each morning go out and like, oh, you know, I think I saw an interesting bird out here. Would kind of bird with these guys. And every day I'd see the same birds and I couldn't remember what the heck they were. They were all sparrows. They looked the same. And, you know, Bill would be like, hey, here's a, a Savannah sparrow. And I'd look at it and be like, oh, I've, I've never seen that one. He's like, uh, no, we saw it yesterday and the day before that. I'm like, oh, okay, okay. Starting with the LBJs is not the easy uh, way. No. So what I had to do, though, was I had to write down on a piece of paper, Savannah sparrow. And then I thought, well, I should write all the sparrows down that I saw. And then I was like, well, I should write all the birds down that I've seen. And that was sort of, uh, I guess, the birding origin story that you didn't ask for, but <laughs> but that you're getting. Um, you beat then, me to it. And then from there, you know, I was kind of hooked on, I, I learned that you could get jobs working in different places with wildlife. And I just kind of went, sort of just dove into there. I ended up, I lived in Pennsylvania. I had worked a year in Texas. And at the end of that position, I loved that job and but I was like, well, I want to work somewhere that's not Pennsylvania and not Texas uh, just to see something new. And I ended up in Southern California uh, working on the San Clemente Loggerhead Shrike Project, which oh, wow. um, is a... You hit the a, jackpot there. Yeah. And that was, yeah. you know, it was a fantastic program. Um, San Clemente Loggerhead Shrike is a, a federally listed subspecies of the Loggerhead Shrike, and it's endemic to one of the channel islands, which happens to be a, a naval base. And so I was working on this island 70 miles off the coast of the mainland and working with all these biologists who were in their 20s and 30s, and half of them were really enthusiastic birders. So we had all kinds of adventures together. You know, Jason, that that uh, that is crazy. You know who my last guest on, on the podcast was? It was Kimball Garrett. Kimball oh. is a big-time Southern California birder, L.A. County birder, and the San Clemente Islands are in L.A. County, even though it sounds like they probably should be in San Diego County. They're in L.A. County. And so he, he actually talked a little bit about, about how uh, uh, L.A. County got lucky and uh, got the San Clemente Islands, so that makes their uh, county the biggest uh, U.S. county list instead of San Diego. So it's kind of funny that that came up in two consecutive podcasts in a sort of different way. He mentioned that uh, there's a really skilled and talented group of uh, birders who work full-time on San Clemente Island, and, and they have uh, various other people work with them. Sounds like you were one of those various other people. Yeah, and you know, those islands just like the Farallons that um, – you know, have some biologists on them. They get a lot of good rarities. Um, mm -hmm. We, uh, fall migration out there was always pretty insane. And probably the, definitely the, you know, one of the best birds and better experiences, you know, I had out there. I mean, we'd get some of the Asian vagrants. Um, exactly. Like you know, Atu South. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. He, he only, yeah, the weather's never that bad. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Uh, so red-throated pipit was, you know, regularly recorded, you know, every couple years. Um, 
we ended up having a really exciting day with uh, the first record of blue throat outside of Alaska for North America. And yeah. we got photos and um, it stayed around for a few days and everybody who worked on the island was able to see it. Uh, unfortunately, no one else from the mainland is really able to get out there very easily. Um, yeah. There's no private property or anything like that. It's all a military base. But yeah, this, it was a great place to bird and it was it was really exciting. It sounds like, I mean, really, it's almost, uh, it sounds like just a, uh really fortuitous that if you're going to be a birder that uh, two of your first two jobs from the texas texas hill country in san clemente island you you got you know when you list this 200 you have things like blue throat and golden cheeked warbler <laughs> yeah no i mean it was it was it was pretty awesome and and you know through the folks i met on san clemente i was really able to line up a lot of other field jobs through contacts and from there you know I worked in, you know, on a, a bird banding project in Hawaii and uh, ended up in uh, Jamaica for a season and worked with some really great researchers there at the Smithsonian and uh, then hit New Hampshire. So kind of hit all the corners of the country, wow. which is a really good way to go. Um, and, and eventually decided I needed to get, um, if I wanted to have a more, you know, kind of permanent or research-based position in conservation, I wanted to go back to grad school. And so I'd hit all the corners, but Florida. And so I ended up in grad school at the university of Florida, uh, doing some work with wading birds. That's good. Wait, wading birds totally rock. I, uh, I start my first day of birding when I was young, I was young, I was 30. Uh, my wife took me to the Everglades. She was a bird watcher and took me to the Everglades. And I just fell in love with that place. It was just so crazy. We, in the old days, before the hurricanes, you, and Hingo Way uh, uh, was a, a boardwalk at the Everglades. You could walk way out to this pool that was a poster of wading birds. It was, you know, you're like 40 yards from, I don't even know how many species of wading birds, you know, spoonbills and ibises and egrets and and hingas and just all these incredibly insane birds that seem like they you know don't even shouldn't even really exist things like that in the united states feel like you must be in africa or something you know and uh it was quite a first day of birding i was, fell in love the first day so that was very cool uh, so you got to get your waders <laughs> yeah that and yeah florida is a great place to do it there um uh, yeah, so we, what did ahead. you do for uh, research? You said you got your graduate degree there. You did research with waders. What did you look at? So for my master's, I was working in a lab of Peter Frederick, who does a lot of research with uh, egrets and all the different long-lated waders and their ecology in, in South Florida. My intent when I entered grad school was to work in his uh, lab on one of his uh, Everglades projects. There's a, these water management areas that we had been working in. Uh, where all the uh, egrets and herons are nesting and was going to look at some maybe climate or weather pattern related questions with that population. Uh, but right in the first uh, semester that I was in school, there ended up being this opportunity with a uh, particular oil spill event in the Gulf and ended up heading to work on the, uh, what I think was called the Deepwater Horizon uh, oil oh spill that continued sure. for several months in the that. Gulf of Me Mexico and um, ended up doing some work with Grady Grits. Uh, we were, there was a big uh, kind of damage assessment looking at coastal water birds and putting a lot of uh, satellite telemetry devices out on various species. And so my master's ended up looking at um, habitat selection and movements of Grady Grits. So oh. we had, oh, I think we put out 80 transmitters. I was part of a team. You know, I wasn't really solo on this at all. Um, a lot of great people were working on that. And, you know, I just worked with one little part of that and looked at the data from those transmitters of great egrets, which uh, actually were mostly, you know, we had a population in South, South Carolina and Louisiana, and we're kind of comparing those. And and great egrets and these wading birds are, don't be fooled by seeing them slowly flap over the water. I was clocking these things during their migration, 
you know, via the satellite transmitters, um, we'd have birds leave South Carolina with a tailwind and end up on Long Island, New York the next day. I mean, wow. these things were moving, I think that's uh, 600 kilometers, yeah, 600 miles. It's probably uh, 600 miles, I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, so I think I had calculated some average speeds at movement were over 60 miles an hour uh, wow. for some of these birds through the, the night when they get up in high winds at higher levels in the. Yeah. Really moving out. Yeah. That's cool. Sounds like, uh, sounds like you've uh, got to s experience many different parts of America and do some cool work uh, and uh, hone your birding skills all at the same time in those few years after college and during your uh, graduate school. Did you get your job here right out of grad school? Uh, no, after grad school, I bounced around a little bit between uh, consulting firms, trying to find, you know, that, that, you know, more something more permanent so I could kind of phase out of doing the seasonal work. But I uh, actually was almost on the verge of kind of taking a little hiatus from uh, kind of conservation field work or research and um, was going to do some guiding. Uh, mm -hmm. had, had taken a group down to Panama for my first kind of international effort as kind of a logistical coordinator and mm -hmm. kind of assistant guide with the Audubon group. Very and nice. then um, got picked up by a, a guiding company out of British Columbia, Eagle Eye Tours, that do some okay. really nice tours all over the world and led a co-led a trip down to Costa Rica. And I was decided, I'm like, you know, I think I'm going to just focus on guiding for a little bit. And right when I made that mental decision uh, is when I got a, you know, a email from a position I had applied to a couple months ago and sort of forgot about that said, Hey, Washington department of fish and wildlife. We, we'd like to interview you. And yeah, I haven't really looked back since it was a really, it's been a great position here. Um, I've really enjoyed it. Sounds like it. Uh, you, you mentioned, uh, you live in, in Benton County near tri cities. Is that right? Yeah. I, well, yeah. So I'm actually in Franklin County, but, uh, tri cities. Okay. Yeah. There's is a sort bunch of, of counties straddles around there. the river and the two counties there and Walla Walla is not far, but yeah, go okay. Ahead. And you you had mentioned that the, the summer you kind of were at least one of the facilitators of a county challenge. Tell me about that. Yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, on, on top of all the uh, so so I'm the field trip uh, coordinator for Lower Columbia Basin Audubon Society. That's our local Audubon Society here out of Tri Cities. Okay. Um, and with Kind of COVID-19, uh, all our field trips are still canceled. Mm -hmm. But back when I was in grad school in Florida, the Alachua Audubon Society did this June challenge. And I participated in it once. It, I think I, it's been going now. They're still doing it. It's in their 17th or 18th year. And it was kind of started. And I, I kind of echoed their, their thought process on it that uh, – in these places where it's really hot in the summer, people aren't birding as much right. and we're missing a lot of really interesting opportunities and species. Then I took a look at our eBird data for, you know, the Columbia basin counties, and you can see how many checklists there are over different time periods through the year. And uh, July was definitely the lull of eBirding activity, at least in the Columbia basin. So, um, so I pitched this, uh, you know, kind of, idea to do this July challenge um, to get as many people out birding as possible and recording their sightings on eBird to kind of one, beef up that database, but also get people to realize there's still a lot going on. This is a, a time of year when fall migration starting in July with some of the sure. shorebirds moving through and resident breeders are now at their peak populations with uh, new recruits being added to the population. And all that data is kind of not getting fully recorded with as much effort as we put into say spring migration when everybody's birding. Sure. And so I kind of have had, it was a little bit of a friendly competition between Benton County birders and Franklin County birders. And you could bird in both counties if you wanted to, but we just tried to see which County we could get the highest list to over the, you know, from the first until the last day in July. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and I sent out little e uh, emails. It was really fun every getting everybody's uh, updates throughout the month and kind of kept track of who the top birders were in, you know, each of the counties and, and sent out information about some of the interesting sightings. You know, we had a, an over-summering uh, over swan in Benton County, a, wow. a tundra swan that kind of kicked things off as a local rarity. And, um, and we ended uh, then with actually second county record Clark's Nutcrackers wow. in Benton County. And this is very nice. a really weird place to see Clark's Nutcrackers, which you normally see up at high elevation near Alpine or, you know, in sure. more conifer areas. Apparently this year there's been a real terrible cone crop and oh. we actually had five i believe clark nutcrackers uh down at a site in benton county um and i recently got another report of one in grant county uh you know again in the lowlands treeless kind of area except for what mm -hmm. you know local yards have so so this could be an interesting fall and winter for uh seed eaters. unusual yeah. mountain seed eaters yeah, it could be. Uh, do you, I haven't looked at what the seed crop's supposed to be like in the northern Canadian forest, so it'd be interesting to see if our white-winged crossbills and all sorts of stuff come down or not. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah, I'm excited. There's definitely some opportunities, you know, now to find some new new species that are unexpected, and then that should continue this, this yeah. fall. I've got a couple questions for you, Jason, on how you did this challenge. Did you set up a, an eBird account for each county that people shared their lists with? That is just going to manually collate that, or how did you how did you work that out? How did you keep yeah. track? Yeah, uh, you know, uh, I I was just worried that no one was even going to participate. So, <laughs> you know, dealing with the data wasn't my biggest concern, but I did. Um, I gave folks two options and everyone actually utilized eBird, which was great. There were several first time eBird users. Uh, I want to say there were about 30 people who participated in this first challenge. Mm -hmm. um, and the, I would have them send lists whenever they wanted to, but they, the, you know, in eBird, it's really easy to get your month list for. Oh a yes. Okay. Um, and so I just had them send me the CSV. Uh, and then I, used basically uh, a spreadsheet to kind of tabulate all that and sure. keep keep everyone up to speed on how the counties were doing in the neck and neck race through the month. And, and yeah, it was really fun. So who won? That's really what we <clears throat> want to know. So Benton County, uh, Benton County kind of kicked Franklin County's butt there in the end. Franklin County's one of the top five least birded counties in all of Washington per eBird mm -hmm. records. Uh, we just had a lot more people in Benton County. Since I now live in Franklin County, you know, I was a little disappointed, but I think there's a good chance uh, Franklin could hang in there and, and take it any time in the future. Both these counties are very, very close in terms of their species counts and habitats. And uh, so it made it really fun to kind of have this comparable area yeah. to play with. In the end, Benton County ended up winning uh, and beat Franklin County by... A, a small margin. They had 137 species recorded in July. Franklin County had 123. Uh, both counties missed some kind of easier birds and, and got some really exciting birds. And both counties all had, you know, unique birds that aren't, you know, weren't found in the other county. You know, Franklin County, um, the Fruginous Hawks, for instance, mostly nest in Franklin County. Um, okay. And... Uh, we have a colony of tricolored blackbirds and tricolored blackbird I don't think has ever been recorded in Benton County. Um, but, uh, you know, Benton. And then, so yeah, so it ended up being a really good opportunity and folks really got out to explore new areas um, they either they had never been to before or at least hadn't really been to in the summer. So yeah. uh, it was, yeah, it was really fun. I think it was a success and I'm hoping to run it as an annual event. Yeah, it'll be more fun when you can have a party afterwards and and, uh, and talk about the results over a couple of beers or something, you know, instead of doing everything virtually. Yeah, I know the Lachua, uh, so they do a June challenge there in Florida, and um, they uh, I know they have a big potluck, and they, they even have a trophy that gets passed oh, between passed the, back uh, and forth, back yeah. and forth, so... Maybe in the future we'll we'll yeah. Have sounds like you've got a sounds like you've got a tradition you can begin. That'd be really fun. 
Jason, uh, working in the field every day as a birder must be pretty f- cool. Uh, I mean, I, I uh, one of my good friends, uh, his wife asked him, he said, they were driving down the highway and she said, are you always thinking about birds? Is, is, it seems like every time we drive somewhere or go shopping, you're, you're just always looking at the wires and pointing out a hawk or wondering what a little bird is. <laughs> and I know birders, so that's how birders are. We're just always looking to see what we can see. And if you're out in the field as a part of your job, I mean, this gives you plenty of opportunity to see cool stuff. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, and it gets me out to areas in the county that I probably wouldn't normally go to as a birder and, and hopefully can help, you know, uh, make some new discoveries, uh, highlight some new birding areas for local birders. And, um, yeah, it's, it's really, it's been great. It's also, you know, kind of a a struggle when, you know, I'm driving past Palouse Falls or Lions Ferry and really want to go and see what's there, but I'm doing deer surveys or something like that. And, uh, not all my job gets to be, uh, you know, looking at birds, but I am looking for birds, probably uh, exactly. uh, a good part of the job, no matter where I'm working. Very cool, Jason. Uh, are there passions you have, things you want to do regarding with regards to birding in the, you know, coming years? Are there, you know, just things you're just dying to do either locally or not so locally? Oh, well, you know, I guess since I've been staying put a little bit the last uh, several years, you know, I have been trying to uh, begrudgingly, um, breaking into kind of the county listing mentality and, uh, sure. uh, enjoying kind of birding Franklin County and, you know, the other counties around here, you know, with birding, it's always, you know, kind of what, what game are you playing that motivates you at the, at mm-hmm. the current time. And, you know, for me, I've, I've really spent a lot of time traveling around, uh, you know, somewhat for jobs, but also internationally just kind of for fun and for birding and, mm-hmm. You know, I'm always really looking forward to whatever my next big international trip was. I was really fortunate to get um, in February down to Guatemala uh, and do some birding with uh, Kevin Black, who um, I think you may know. He's now a kind of a Vancouver-based Washington birder. I know Um, of him, yeah. But uh, so the two of us went down and kind of did a it was a combination of uh, self-guided and local guides, but got to see some species that um, I'd been dreaming about for, for years with the uh, awesome looks at horned guan, which is just a, a ridiculous yeah. uh, cloud, you know, uh, kind of forest unicorn. It is. Um, and all the kind of the, the endemics down there with azure rump tanager and, mm-hmm had just yeah really great time and when we left we had heard about you know uh, there's a you know some uh flu-like disease in china that was going on and yeah didn't really think anything of it it hadn't at least to my knowledge been in the u.s or anything and by the time we got back um you know it was the very end of february and uh you know 10 days later i think they closed the guatemala border Um, I think they closed as early as March 10th. And I actually had several friends who were trapped uh, abroad for, I had some friends in Africa for four months because they were on a safari and there was a 24 hour notice that the, the flights were going to all be canceled and the border closed. And I have a friend who was stuck in uh, Peru for some period of time before she could get home. So yeah, I think that's a story we've all heard. Uh, I was lucky enough. I, I spent a, half of January and half of February in, in uh, South Texas in the Rio Grande Valley and came home just, uh, you know, again, mid-February, just before things uh, really started to tighten down. So felt lucky to get home too. Yeah. And I, I was able to, you know, at least get get that little bit of travel lust satisfied for a, a short period of time. And we'll, yeah, we'll see hope, what happens in 2021. Hopefully it'll last you. We'll have to last you until the next <laughs> time you can go somewhere, won't it? Jason, I try to give my guests a chance to put a plug in for something that they're passionate about. Is there anything you want to uh, give a shout out to or uh, make sure uh, listeners hear about? In general, I just would you know encourage people. We're in a, in a fairly difficult, polarized time, I guess. Um, 
it's really great to get out birding, encourage other people uh, to bird safely, obviously. And locally, there's a lot of good places to go for everyone locally. Luckily, birds are almost everywhere. So, you know, look for opportunities to be involved more closely in, in local organizations. Yeah, the more people that we have out there, you know, observing and, you know, documenting birds, uh, the better off informed those people will be and tied to their kind of local areas um, when different policy or development kind of issues rise up. Um, I think it's really important and valuable to be plugged into local politics um, to, to some extent. Um, but it's also really nice to be able to unplug from that as well uh, <laughs> nowadays yeah. too. So <laughs> birding is. allows you to do both, I think. I think you're right. Uh, the more people we have passionate about our environment, be it for birding or for any other reason, the better better prepared we'll be to uh, fight the battles that need to be fought. Uh, thanks so much, Jason. Is there a way listeners can reach out to you? Do you have a social media way or email? How do you want people to be able to find you? Yeah, so um, folks can find me. Uh, I am on Facebook. Um, if it's just for kind of general birding uh, outreach, you can also... Uh, there's a Tri-City Birders Facebook group that I manage. Um, okay. So that's mostly, you know, birders from the local area. But uh, I know folks from all over the, the region are probably on that. Uh, so that's just Tri-Cities Birders. If you search for it on Facebook, uh, you can also find me, Jason Fedora, uh, F-I-D-O-R-R-A, on Facebook. Um, or you can email me at uh, if it's, you know, related to... Uh, or find me on the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife site. Uh, I am the, you know, the wildlife biologist for Benton and Franklin County. So especially folks uh, interested in that area can contact me um, through that professional email, which would be jason.fedora at dfw.wa.gov. Terrific, Jason. Thanks so much. Uh, I really had fun talking with you today. Look forward to uh, getting down your way and catching up with you sometime when it's safe to do that. Thanks again for being on the show today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ed. This was great. Well, that wraps up the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 73 with Jason Fedora. Thanks for listening. So make sure you enjoy all of your birding seasons. Don't miss any of them. Summer birding can be cool too. Maybe you can start a competition in your own counties to uh, emulate what Jason is uh, doing in Franklin and Benton County, Washington. Thanks for listening. Until next time, good birding. Good day. Good day.